Hello and welcome to the Rethink Energy podcast, where the Rethink Energy analysts talk about the technology uh, that sits behind this week's energy news. I'm the editor, Peter White, and we've got with us today solar analyst, Andrews Fontenar. Hello. Uh, our hydrogen analyst, Bogdan. Hello. Uh, EV analyst, Connor Watts. Hello. And of course, our product manager, Simon Thompson. Hello, Peter. Remember, all this discussion is built around the stories that we've published, published them last night in our free weekly issue. Go to our website, www.rethinkresearch.biz. You click on energy and you'll be reading it. That's the free weekly newsletter issue. If you click on on forecasts and data, uh, there's a tab there that's uh, forecasts and data. You'll be looking at um, the paid service for Rethink Energy, uh, which is made up of forecasts 10 forecasts a year and 20 research papers. On this week's podcast, we're going to discuss a new ruling in China that some of the solar technology will be kept from the West. And we're also going to discuss our new report, our annual report, annual primary electricity we do every year. It's the third edition. Um, We'll be discussing some of the conclusions from that. And then we're going to ask, well, we're going to debate what's going to happen to the Japanese car industry. Specifically, we've got announcements this week from Toyota, Suzuki and Nissan, and they're all trying hard to catch up, or rather, they're trying hard not to catch up in EVs. And then Simon will quiz us on one of the two of the short items we've published on the energy transition. But first, let's look at um, China's Ministry of Commerce plan to ban certain solar exports, Um, Andres. Yeah, it's part of a, a much broader ban. And if you look at what they list, a lot of it seems to be do, to do with uh, agriculture and breeding and uh, germplasm and gene editing. Uh, but there's also satellites and spacecraft and uh, rare earths. And... Is, there, is there pandemic spreading in there? <laughs> well, uh, who knows? So really, it, it, solar is just part of it. In fact, solar is just part of the semiconductor part of this. And perhaps semiconductors are the most crucial part of, uh, of this um IPR ban. Mostly, it, it's a ban, I, I believe, on semiconductors and some other things. Uh, a lot of the list is merely restricted, and, and the restricted items are more on the uh, gene editing, sort of uh, biological side of things. So, you know, probably this is, I, I guess, that our, our sister publications talk about uh, the semiconductor trade war quite a lot. Uh, and, and this is just a small echo of it uh, affecting the solar industry. But at the same time, the solar industry is actually uh, very important for China. I think it. I think China, just off the top of my head, made fifty billion dollars um, from exporting solar modules and and some components as well last year. So that's enough to keep Ukraine Ukraine's military running for a month or two. Um, it's. Uh, and of course, the big question is, well, I'm not sure why those two facts are parallel. Well, it's just it's just how I was thinking, you know, it, I was just thinking, how do you how do you um, frame 50 billion dollars? And I thought, well, that probably fits. So, um, you know, part, part of the story is the story itself. And the other part is, is, is now we know that actually China has some level of IP that it can ban after decade after decade um, in which it's the technology importer. And it's just copying the West. Yeah, it's a shame hmm. most of it's been stolen from the West. That's that's one of the uh, the sad facts. Um, it, you know, the, the, the practice is um, you let someone make advanced materials or advanced products in China for the cheap manufacturing. 
you infiltrate it with uh, workers that are going to come out and explain how it all works. Uh, they come out and they set up a competition um, and then they, they're, they're given a, a kind of title of being a university professor. And then suddenly um, they're making uh, copies of uh, Western technology. It's been going on forever. So if we go back 30 or 40 years, um, there was a COCOM uh, list, and it was all very secret. But the COCOM was all about not allowing communist uh, countries to, um, to steal mostly uh, information technology from the West. Uh, and when the um, barriers came down, it was... Uh, hilarious to go into China and into Russia and see exact duplicates of the digital equipment core PDP-11 and, and VAX-11780 um, and the ICL-1904 were all um, made out of completely strange components that were manufactured over there, but again, copies of uh, the original components and not a line of code had been changed. So, um, and then they said, oh, us copy. Um, you know, so so it it is a bit uh, of um, of a tail wagging the dog here. Um, but surely there... times have changed. This is the twenty first century. They must have R and D departments, their academia. Uh, they must have the capability of of doing all of this research on their own. Yeah, I think. I, I do, you re do you remember about the cloning, or or, the, or was it the gene editing thing they did, uh, or, or something at some child's birth? Uh, and it was frowned on by the entire community. And they said, oh, but we, you're just jealous because we've got a breakthrough. And, and, and the, the resounding reply was, um, yeah, but you don't have a breakthrough in, in ethics because we wouldn't allow this anywhere in the rest of the world. The only reason you've got an advance is because no one else would dream of doing it. I don't deny that. Um, so it's really interesting um, legal action um, many years ago in the West between uh, Qualcomm and Broadcom. And what happened in that uh, um, legal action uh, around, around intellectual property was Broadcom was known to have never invented anything. And Qualcomm had invented loads of things and everyone thought Qualcomm would win, win it hands down. But it turns out that Broadcom had patented process steps um, in making uh, chips, the back to semiconductors, and it was the process steps particularly how you manage to uh, basically switch off most of the circuits are not being used on, for instance, a mobile phone. Um, and these were process steps in the manufacturing process. They weren't really inventions as such, but they were patentable. And, they, 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 and I think it's the nature, that's the nature of many of these. Um, and I think, I think you're right that, you know, anyone who's, who's dominating an industry will move it on forwards and, and will be on the learning curve and will um, um, we'll want to patent those things. The, the interesting thing is it took about, about 30 years ago, um, American presidents were visiting China to say, if only you would protect intellectual property, then we could trust you. Well, now they've seemed to have um, suddenly become converts. <laughs> yeah, I agree that that's the kind of um, IP that would be, um, that China has to itself now in the solar industry is not necessarily very abstract revolutionary step changes, but simply process changes. The things that you figure out when you have 10 gigawatt factories and 100 gigawatts of production capacity in one company. Um, and and to be fair, the um, a, a recent change in, in solar manufacturing has been the shift to um, 
from from 175 micrometer wafer thicknesses down to 155 is now the mainstream and it's declining even further below that to eventually it's going to be 90 uh, from heterojunction so they do have that uh, i also saw some commentary a while back from a japanese perovskite researcher uh, and he was saying eventually china is going to win on perovskites simply because they have 10 times as many researchers as us so Eventually, they'll have um, a technological lead. I still don't think they do, even on perovskites. Uh, Salatech is the Polish company that actually sells them. Yeah, but Salatech, I don't think, is a massively advanced company. I, I think you, you keep pushing it forward as being one of the most advanced. I mean, you've got things going on in, um, in America with combinations of, um, of uh, uh, universities and industry there which is, is publishing huge steps forwards every now and then. You've got Oxford PV and you've got, uh, and you've got others True. Uh, in the, the, the West. The remarkable the, thing the, about tech is that it's actually commercialised more than it necessarily Yeah, is. I mean, that, that, yeah. sometimes you're, you're first to commercialise because your market will accept an inferior product. I and mean, that's that still in indoor that's devices. The, okay. so it's, it's not really, you know, they, they sort of took what they had. Instead of trying to force but, that, but I'm sure they have some intellectual property in here. Oh yes, oh yes. The, the 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 thing is, you can't sue in China. One of the problems, one of the things that stopped China from ever um, claiming intellectual property, is the amount they've copied. And so they they would export a product, and you'd look if you looked inside it, you'd say, "This is my intellectual property. How are they using this?" And they haven't paid me any patents, any royalties, and um, and so. But you couldn't look, you couldn't sue inside China because they just say, oh, no, we're a great and good company and, and we've, we've done this R&D. And so what would happen is no one, that China could not export that technology back to the West. It could only use it in China. And we've had 20 years of that. Um, but now it's, it's starting to um, you know, be able to ex talk about technologies that, uh, that, that it, it actually owns. But... Are you saying they're going to ban exporting solar panels or just the machines which make solar panels? I believe it's wafer production equipment. And if you look at the the, the four big segments of the supply chain, polysilicon wafers, um, cells and modules, wafers uh, is where China has something like 97% of global production and probably will maintain above 90% for quite a while, and I can't imagine that it will go below 80% really ever until uh, in, 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 things completely change. Um, so maybe what the Chinese want is not necessarily to actually stop the development of uh, domestic manufacturing in India and the US, which are the two markets currently pursuing that, but maybe just to slow down and penalize the uh, wafer production segment. Uh, and, and so what the Chinese would be quite content with is if they could still export cells and just leave um, module production as a fig leaf that all of the uh, customers can point to to say, oh, we're producing our own modules. I think that would, might be the strategy here. There's a Chinese um, curse uh, which goes, may you live in interesting times. <laughs> and, and, and I think we are... Uh, and you will live through interesting times in this. We get to this idea that things are as they are for a reason and they will always be like this. This is something we have to, as analysts, we have to fight because I've grown, um, I've been in technology 
for almost 50 years. And all I've noticed is that's never been true. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, that, that, yeah, it's true until it's not. You know, no, no good tech company ever came out of Europe. Oh, yeah, and there, there is ARM. Um, and, you know, and then you kind of go, oh, yeah, that's a really good tech company. And so, so the rules can be broken and they can be bent. And China um, is, is the home of 97% of uh, polysilicon manufacturing and uh, uh, all wafers. But processes um, that make those, that, that almost obviate that, um, sort of iron deposition processes are used all over the world in, uh, uh, in semiconductors. What, why, why would you even start with a wafer? Um, it, it would be what some people say. Um, I, I think, I think um, we went to China because uh, uh, labor was, was um, far cheap, far cheaper, much cheaper. Now, now it's cheaper to um, put it somewhere near a home. Um, and, and you'll notice the American car company has a strong relationship with places like Mexico now. Why wouldn't it also put some, if it needs cheap labor, why wouldn't it also build um, some advanced technology that's only just across the border? So I think, I think there's, um, I think the idea that none of this will change is a wrong idea. I think um, people like Biden have seen the future and they didn't like the look of it. So they've set about changing it. So I, I think, I think it will change. Um, with this, we've never been in this situation before. And that's that's what's interesting about it, and I I believe that. Um, uh, but but you've got to look at the motivation for China here. Why, why are they doing this? It's 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 a counter strike in a trade war, you know. And and that's that's it's as simple as that. Well, they wouldn't have done it if, if but the Inflation um, Reduction Act hadn't been passed. So on the Inflation Reduction Act, you were criticising. You're saying um, it's not going to last forever. Uh, it won't lead to uh, organic industries that will survive very well once the subsidies are drawn down. But um, the trade war against China, you're, you're more optimistic about. Okay, so I'm allowed to contradict myself. No, I'm, I'm old. Um, <laughs> no, no, no. But I, I, I think the jury's out on all of that. I think subsidies is not a way to go. Um, Long-term bulk subsidies is very expensive way to stimulate the economy for a short period. Um, it's not enough on its own. You have to go through a proper transition. I mean, the, we can't imagine the European service economy ever being any good at manufacturing again. But the reason we can't imagine that is because manufacturing jobs don't pay as, as much and people in Europe don't like doing them. And we assume that that's also true in America. But then you look at something like Boeing aircraft and you go, yeah, they're used to making stuff in America. They're making the best version of the best plane in the world. Um, and, they, and, and they're manufacturing it throughout their economy. So they, they are used to making stuff um, and making it relatively cheap. But it, it, if it's down to the cost of labor, the cost of labor in China is still significantly cheaper than uh, America. And it's cheaper elsewhere. So, so they would have to continue, you know, they'd have to make the same mistake again. They, they talk about energy security and they're talking about we don't want our solar panels made by a foreign power, a foreign, you know, not so friendly power. Well, okay, so does Mexico okay? It's just across the border, you can invade them if they're a problem. You know, can you can you use their cheap labor instead? And and if the, the economic rules haven't changed, 
Um, obviously, we've got a, a surging middle class in China now, um, but they're not outweighing the um, the working classes. You know, there's still plenty of cheap labour in China. Yeah, and that's the thing that I would sort of question because I'm still stuck in the mode of thought that, oh, China went in the past 10 years from 18% of global manufacturing to 28%, and presumably that means in another 10 years it'll be up at 34%. Uh, you know, even when it loses a lot of the wage, uh, cheap wage advantage, it's now the country that has scale, immense scale. Um, like the solar, the, the solar seg each segment of the supply chain I mean, I haven't seen it. I haven't put together a proper map of it. But just from reporting individual factory announcements, I very much get the impression that the polysilicon is is located quite far from the coast, up in the periphery in Sichuan and Xinjiang and in Mongolia. Then you move to the wafer factories, and they're a little bit further down at the start of the rivers. And then the cell factories are perhaps middle way down the rivers, and then the module factories are near the ports. I mean, that's obviously an oversimplification, but that sort of scale just doesn't exist elsewhere. They, they also have the cheap uh, electricity. So, but do you think that we're now seeing that the, the, so you think that Biden's strategy uh, to limit China's trade effectively um, for certain things on the world stage, do you think that we're now looking at the peak of Chinese manufacturing dominance, maybe not this year, but within five or 10 years, it might reach 34% and never get very far beyond that? I think if it, if if that doesn't happen, then all the intellectual property moves to China, all wealth moves to China, and, and America has pulled that trick once over a fifty-year period, um, and they're all too all too aware of what would happen if China pulls it again. I suspect momentum is still with China, and I suspect there's there's very little we can do to stop it. Um, but except the world has woken up. You know, the, the Russian war is responsible for this. Oh, oh, these are these countries aren't just our buddies or our uh, servants. They are, in fact, potentially our rivals. And I think the world has woken up. Is there anything they can do about it? Well, you look at the size of the American economy uh, and the size of the Chinese economy 10 years ago, and there was no comparison. Today, there's barely any difference in total scale. Now, all right, it's spread across more people. But um, um, can that momentum be shifted? I don't think $369 billion sprayed across hundreds of different industries is enough. That's not enough money. They'll have to keep doing it. Um, but I think we found on the, um, on the solar um, subsidies and on the wind subsidies, every government after, once they got used to them, just, just said, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll extend them. We'll extend them some more. So if, if Joe Biden's... Uh, starts the, the Inflation Reduction Act is just a start, and it gets extended and extended and increased and improved and better focused, then maybe the tide will be turned in that way. But the rest of the world won't be standing still. The rest of, of um, Asia will not will not be saying, you know, let's let's um, uh, let China make all this stuff. Um, Vietnam, um, Malaysia, Indonesia, all these countries, the Philippines, Taiwan, will all be trying to get their share of the cake. So this is, you know, but it's first first stage in a trade war. Who is on your side? And if all of those countries are on China's side, um, well, that, that's that's not a very good situation to start from. So um, is Korea, is Japan, is Taiwan on America's side? Um, we, we, we'll have to see. Well, Taiwan certainly is, but. Um, um, we'll have to see. 
I, I, I would say I'm not predicting the outcome of this fight. I'm just saying it is a fight. And just, just to, I think we've mentioned what it would do to um, non-Chinese solar manufacturing efforts, which is I think it will just add in an extra step where it has to, um, now you have to build the machines that build the machines that build the production lines. It just delays it by a bit. I don't think it will change the strategy. You mentioned Mayor Berger in your piece. Um, and the thing about Mayor Berger is um, it used to make those machines. Yeah. And it stopped making them because it, it was frightened that 80% of its customers were in China. And by the time it stopped, um, it, you know, it's more like 90%. So that's the, that's the issue is, is that um, they can copy your designs and, and make them more cheaply and you know therefore you are at a huge disadvantage so there is um uh is there going to be a market for that again will mayenberg re-emerge not only as a solar manufacturer but as a manufacturer of solar equipment once again um if the west starts making solar panels uh, and, I, and also unintended consequences and new directions innovation will change the solar industry in the next five years it will then change again in the next five after that. Um, it's the it's the nimble that, um, that that will win that fight, not the um, not those that invest in perk technology. And, and that's final final word on this. Just just to point out, we come across this all the time. China gets things done because it's run from the top. Um, it's run well from the top. Um, Russia doesn't get things done because it's not only run badly from the top but there's so much corruption on every level on the way down. Um, how long before China starts turning into Russia? You just have to be be careful. You pick, put the wrong man in at the top and you have a disaster on your hands. So um, I, I, th I think most of the world is going to say, we make enough stuff in China. Let's, let's make a bit more at home. Uh, again, uh, I said it was the last point, but I, I come back to my favourite law, the um, carbon border tax of the European Union. That is the great redeemer, because if, you, if, if you're importing stuff from China, um, from a, a coal economy uh, across on ships that use oil, um, you're going to get a huge carbon tax at the border. And that gives you a margin where you could have made it cheap, more cheaply at home. So that that type of regulation will help the world make stuff where it's used. Let's move on. Let's move on. We've, um, we've got another story. Uh, uh, yeah, so APE is um, uh, a term we invented, um, annual primary electricity. It's, um, it's sort of, um, it's a snipe at uh, the oil industry, which always talks about primary energy. Um, and it's it's the exact opposite of primary energy. Let's measure energy by how many joules uh, you get from it when it burns, rather than how much of that energy you use um, when you harness it. Um, so oil is always um, uh, given the primary spot in primary energy uh, numbers, and it's not um, because the amount of energy you get from it is uh, is about 20% of, of its output. So um, we call it uh, uh, annual primary electricity um, because this is a, a, a decade of electric electrification. Um, we've got our third report out on it. And, um, and and as soon as you look at the spreadsheets from this, and they are, uh, there is a global model of electricity production everywhere between now and 2050. Um, 
you start to see the future. Bogdan, you did this year's copy of the report. Um, what did you see in the future? Yes, so this report is all about the upcoming change in the energy market. We see a decline in, in, in the oil market driven by um, a change in, in transportation habits. Obviously, the upcoming EV market is going to, to undertake ICE cars, to combustion cars. They're going to drive down a lot of economies, and that's exactly what AP is looking at. Uh, we're looking at uh, Middle Eastern countries, um, what potential they have for change in this, in this um, upcoming shift in, in the market. We look at countries like Australia, India, um, we'll talk about Chile as well. These are countries with, with high renewable resources that um, are in a prime position to plan for the future and invest into the right renewable technologies like wind and solar and um, get on the hydrogen train and set up an export um, industry. We have entire countries like India, I even heard of Turkey recently that um, are basing their entire economies on on, on hydrogen uh, production and export. So AP is looking at all those things. Uh, we're also looking at countries like Mexico and Brazil, who are also relying heavily on, on fossil fuels and oil um, exports and, and what opportunities uh, they have uh, given the general elections that are happening, that well, that has happened one in, in Brazil last year and uh, the upcoming one in Mexico. And uh, we're also looking at the big countries like uh, United States and China and, and a few European ones. Okay, so um, I mean, I, I'm I'm always confused. I um I, I ask everyone the same question: Why can no one else see the change that's going to happen to oil? Fifty percent of all revenues come from um, from land transport, and yeah. if you uh, don't have that land transport requiring oil, then you haven't got enough money coming from oil to take it out to bother taking it out the ground. Um, some countries, this is a, a $30 barrier. You go below 30 and they can't make any money from it. Some, it's 20 but it's it, there's a defined, defined amount in how much it takes you to get it out of the ground and refine it and make all the um, industries off the back of it. And, you know, if oil starts stops being used in 50% of all cars, which is roughly where we are in 2030, um, you know, oil is going down. The, the usage is going down, 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 and it's irrevocably down. Why can no, no one else see that? Because I don't see that written anywhere else. But <clears throat> this week is Shell has announced $39 billion of profit. Uh, it has shot the lights out. It's an oil company. How, how could, you know, how, how could you uh, um, square that with, with uh, uh, APE? Well, how can you square that with um, uh, the fact that that $39 billion has come mostly from the pockets of poor people who um, are reliant on uh, driving around? And it makes it, it's like China. It's something the government has to get together and stop. You know, it's, it's something that we've got to do something about, um, making obscene profits uh, based on a cartel. Well, why would you set the world up like that? You know, it's a series of accidents. Yes, okay. OPEC was a series of accidents and countries trying to get together to because they were 
effectively being raided by Western companies who owned all the, the rights to the oil in their, in their respective countries. And so they got together and said, hold on, we, we, we'll agree terms under which we can uh, uh, give away our oil and maybe we won't give it away. Maybe we'll have our own national oil companies. And then uh, history tells us that, that they're turning to a, a cartel of countries which were originally quite poor um, and which are now use oil as, as a basis of wealth. But why would you let 20 oil, 20 oil rich countries, which are poor countries otherwise, control the global economy? That's that's way lies madness. And an example of that madness is $39 billion of profit a shell. Mm. So, so will that be fixed? Well, that's why we're going, heading to EVs. We're heading to EVs just as much because we've got fuel. Fuel equals corruption. I mean, let's get, let's get this equation right. Fuel equals uh, rape and pillage. It means, you know, we can charge what we like for it. We can create a uh, lack of supply and that will create, uh, I mean, $39 billion. You think about what's going on here. The world's producing about 2% less oil than it did in 2019. Mm -hmm. And yet they're making four times as much profit on it. Oh, oh, is that artificially controlling the supply? Mm. Oh, oh, dear. Oh, oh, there's nothing I can do about it. It's, <laughs> it's, a, you know, um, it's a natural market. What can I, what can I tell you? So this idea of trusting the markets when there's a cartel in operation is, is I mean, if you did this inside a country, you'd go to prison for it. So, so you know, but when you do it on the global stage, it's suddenly, it's unavoidable, therefore legal. So, yeah, I can, I can certainly, it's one of the driving factors behind, but energy security is the driving factor. I mean, that's the thing. Energy security, I want all the energy to come from where I live, you know, uh, um, America's been going on about it for years. They wanted oil security. They wanted to make enough oil that they could make all that they needed and export some. And they've achieved it. And they've achieved it more or less through fracking and through advanced technologies. Um, but really, if you can't achieve it, or if the world changes the price on the oil, it, it just it throws your economy. I mean, Western economies are in, um, in recession because of this. So why are they celebrating? You know, and they're all moving their stock. ExxonMobil, uh, once again, has become the richest, the most valued company in the world. And a little while ago, it's been dropped out the uh, um, out of the top 500 um, companies in America, in the American stock market. So, you know, that's volatility. Can we live with that volatility? No. Yeah, so, so we're going to electrify and if we do electrify, what happens to the value of this? It just evaporates. So they're making hay while the sun shines. The sun will stop shining. Big clouds coming. <laughs> I mean, we'll look back on this and go, why didn't we fix it sooner? I've got a question for you. You know, um, all the prices of energy has gone up in all across Europe. And it's gone up a bit in America. It's gone up a bit in Australia. It's gone up a bit in China. But it's gone up a large amount in those other countries. Um, why can't it go down again? Because all the regulators are set up are up with regulations which stop it going up. And when they, they're told, well, we'll all go bankrupt if you don't let it go up, they let it go up. Well, now the price of gas and oil are back below pre-war numbers. Why hasn't it gone down? Now, oil for your car uh, has gone down. But the natural gas... Um, 
electricity generation price. Um, they've allowed those price increases to go across the board in all utilities. And that's, you know, why can't it just go down again? It can't because there's no law that says you can set the pricing. All you can do is set a limit to, um, to the amount of increase you can charge each year. Um, so we're all set to remain poor, 10 or 12% uh, higher costs in, our, uh, in, in anything that transport touches, and that's food. Now, that seems to be everything. I mean, I, I can't understand why rents have gone up, but, but I suppose the, the landlord's companies aren't making as much profit because they've got a fleet of cars or something. So whatever their justification, everything's gone up. Everything's gone up as a, by right. So why can't it go down again? Well, you know, uh, Shell's prices are already down. So don't expect this to be repeated. That $39 billion, they better nurse it and look after it and not just give it to their shareholders because it's not going to happen next year. Um, so what we're forecasting in APE uh, is the, a time frame for that. Um, but we're forecasting virtually everything in the market. I mean, if, if you need a model that shows you how fast solar's growing, um, it's in APE. If you need a model that shows you how fast wind uh, will grow, it's in APE. If you want to know how rapidly hydrogen will be adopted, it's in APE. Um, it's, um, our marketing guy complained yesterday how... Uh, how much time it took him to configure to put our style sheet onto all of the spreadsheets because there were so many of them, and they're all linked. And they're, <laughs> and they're you know, it is the biggest thing we do, and it's a combination of everything we do all year. Um, well, does so, he want to know how much it took me to actually put together the spreadsheet and the numbers? <laughs> so, uh, many sleepless nights, I'm sure. I'm sure. Okay, yeah. So, um, yeah, it's a brave effort, Bogdan. Well done. Um, so, if you want to buy this. Go to rethinkresearch.biz, um, click on energy, click on uh, forecast and data, and it will be sitting there ready for you to buy it. Um, uh, either it's there already. I think it is already there. Um, and what does it cost? It costs the same as all of our other data. We have one price. Okay. Let's move on to the last topic of the day, which is it's not moving too far away from this. Is um, Connor. Um, it's really just a roundup of um, of changes in the car industry in Japan. Yeah, so there's been a fair amount of news recently localized to Japan, the biggest of which being the announcement of the intention for the CEO of Toyota, Akio Toyota, I believe the great-grandson of the founder of the company, to resign. And that will take effect April 1st. I don't know if you thought that was amusing. <laughs> and his... Long-time underling, I believe his name is Koji Sato, the head of Lexus, will be taking over as the CEO of the Toyota Group. And it's quite rare for governance structures to change in Japan. It's very much you work there for a very, very long time. And so it's not a regular event. This Mr. Sato will probably be in the seat of Toyota chair for as long as Toyota, if not longer, because he's on yeah, the Yeah, they all go to retirement, don't they? So, so uh, Toyota's about 66, so he's just coming up. He's moving retirement. up to chairman, yeah. yes. Yeah, and the thing, is, thing in your piece that I don't think you fully understood is chairman is a non-exec role in these companies. It's honorary, uh, and, you, and, and traditionally, uh, you do not uh, bully the CEO into doing things your way. You let him get on with it. 
I don't entirely trust how that will function in Japan, where the hierarchical structures and the kind of leadership roles can influence one another. So in the sense that, like, I imagine uh, Mr. Toyota had a pretty serious influence in choosing his successor. And I believe Toyota also took significant advice from his chairman. Uh, I want to say Matsushita, but I definitely wrote that down in the past when making decisions as head of Toyota. So while that might not be a traditional thing of like, it's a non-influencing role in name, I agree. I'm not trusting of that until I see it. Yeah, so I'm used to following these companies and they do change direction. Um, You go back to say uh, 2003, um, something called the Sony Shock. Um, Sony was churning out money like there was no tomorrow and suddenly all of its profits just, just went south. And it dropped to about 10% of, of what it had produced the previous year. Within 18 months, the CEO was out, new CEO was in, who failed to fix it, but made a lot of dramatic attempts to fix it, mostly because the problem was really, really there are too many factories, there are too many costs, there are too many product lines. They didn't have enough rationalization. It was a big task. So they set about fixing it, and then it went on to the next one, and they, they brought an American in for the next one, and then and then it went back to becoming the Japanese. So they got five-year terms of office, and still today, Sony is not the powerhouse that it once was. Um, but it, it, it's that's how a change of strategy is built in, and they can buy and sell factories, product lines, uh, without the chairman's intervention. So I can vouch for that, having watched it for so long. Uh, 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 Japanese companies do not let the chairman intervene. It's it's an honorary position. Um, So just if this guy is um, the real deal, does he really believe in electric vehicles? Because they've been going on, banging on about hydrogen since about 1980. Well, so here's the head of Lexus, who seems to be the only brand under the Toyota group that has any interest in electric vehicles, (laughs) where the... uh, about a few months prior to um, Toyota's retirement, they did a promotional um, thing with Lexus, with Sato and Toyota driving an electric vehicle around the new Lexus. And Lexus has committed towards electrifying all of its product offerings by 2030. That's quite a European kind of promise. Maybe not so in the luxury kind of low volume market where it can be a bit earlier, like with Jaguar, but it's far, far more than what the rest of the group is doing. And so out of who else could have been picked to be CEO, there's far, far worse prospects within Toyota to do so. So there's reason for hope in that regard. Yeah, well, I think something like 50% of Lexus um, uh, um, models are sold in Europe. I think that's Mm. got a lot to do with it. I think, you know, they are, um, they're framed by the areas that they manage. Um, so, you know, Japanese cars do well. In fact, they do. Toyota is the largest, was the largest car company in the world. I think it's now arguing the toss with uh, Volkswagen. But um, certainly, if you take in all uh, types of vehicles, including trucks, it's, um, it's, it's the largest car maker in the world. And it, it's, it sells well in uh, America. Uh, it sells really well in diff- lots of different parts of Asia, poor parts of Asia, and as well as as China. And it sells really well in Europe. So, um, I think um, you know that each each fiefdom 
will will behave slightly differently and have different rules. But in Japan, it's been the same thing all, all the way through. Put a small battery in to uh, uh, to run a mild hybrid. Um, potentially, some of those you can put a plug in, but not many. Um, and and then pretend the electric electric vehicle revolution will go away. Um, that has been the approach for all of these companies in Japan, um, and that's now got to be challenged. Where, do, you, do you get any? Did you get any uh, statement coming out of the company that it would accelerate uh, electric vehicle uh, strategy? He hasn't resigned yet. Okay. So there has been no succession as of yet. That will happen in early April, and so that's when I'm going to be looking out heavily for announcements with regards to any change in direction for the company. What about other companies which... in here? So Suzuki has made a very, very similar announcement that Mazda made in November, I believe it was, where they're spending about 4.5 trillion yen, which is about 35 billion USD, on electrification research and a little bit of ice research as well to maintain profits going forwards over the next, uh, I believe that was up until 2030, so over the next seven years. And so they uh, made some interesting statements. They want to be able to produce EVs, like very, very small EVs that they call K cars, that are not too dissimilar from the little golf carts you see being sold over in uh, China and being called an EV. We'll be driving around in those soon. I'll be happy to do so, but until then... Yeah, yeah. So small small cars, light, uh, short range, um, yes. for running around, running around within a, you know, with a 100 to 200 Urban commuters. range. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And so they want to sell those for less than a million yen in Asia, what, which what? is about 7,500 USD, 78. Okay. Wow. Which is quite a quite statement. <laughs> well, that's, that's... I mean, someone's going to do this at some point. Um, you know, as, as, we, as we keep pointing out in discussions we have, the size of the battery, uh, that doesn't make range anxiety go away. The number of charge points um, that are installed helps it go away. But um, the speed of recharge is what really will help it go away. There's a lot of R&D. In three to four years, there'll be models with fast recharge, um, i.e., um, you might just as well spend the same amount of time that it, it would it would take you to uh, refill your petrol uh, car uh, to refill your electric car. Uh, similar amounts of time, five to seven minutes to get a 50% charge. Now, that's, that's going to be a reality in three or four years, um, which means the design of cars comes down. Because if you want to make cheap cars, you just put less. You, you, the most expensive item is the battery. You just put less battery in and... And immediately, you're um, you you uh, you're going to find um, in three to four years this is going to plummet, and uh, the the cost of electric vehicles. We think solar pricing uh, has gone down rapidly. Cost of electric vehicles is going to be massive, um, especially when you get over those points of fast charging, lots of charge points. Um, so yeah, I, I think um, uh, if they don't move now, and if they don't have new cars by 2025. Uh, whichever company they are, they're gone. <laughs> so I, I like the idea of Suzuki's strategy. Uh, it just depends when it can deliver on it. Yes, exactly. The last piece of news concerning a Japanese car company this week was that Renault was significantly reducing its voting share of its ownership of Nissan. So it's moving... Well, it owns... 43% of the company, it's reducing its voting capabilities to 15 by moving 28% of its shares into a 
into an independent French trust, which will hold on to them and sell if it sees any issues going forwards. And in return, Nissan will be investing in Renault's EV unit called called Ampere, which doesn't have official numbers released yet, but the numbers floating around seems to be about half a billion to a billion. So not large numbers, but it seems like a there was an agreement reached of Nissan wanting a bit more autonomy, Renault wanting money towards EV expansion, and there being a bit of a deal there. So who's going to uh, uh, arrest the uh, CEO uh, this time? Um, I mean, if you, if you remember a few years ago, um, the CEO went over to work in Japan and uh, 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 Carlos Ghosn. Yeah, yeah, Carlos Ghosn. And uh, he was, um, he had to uh, take his life in his hands and uh, escape while on bail. Uh, and uh, is living in the Lebanon with a, a, a price on his head. I mean, it, it's, um, it's pretty radical. Uh, and it was purely that they decided. Um, He'd used, I don't know, he'd used a private plane or something, and they decided to do him for corruption. But, I mean, he was meant to be the salvation of the company, and he he just tried on too many times by saying, telling this hand what they would and wouldn't do. Uh, and the Japanese uh, executives um, just sold him to the police. I mean, it was just an extraordinary outcome. Um, and so that's that's what this is to avoid. This is to avoid... They're only saying... Can, be itself and do what and pursue its own uh, but but this will be the same thing this is we don't want to go down the ev route but you must say renault no but we don't and 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 it's exactly the same we want to go slow because japan's going slow but japan is is a, a large car market but you've got to remember that the car markets are europe first uh, everyone says china first but if you put all the collectives of europe europe first china Second, America third, Japan not even on the list. Um, it, you, if you're a Japanese company, you have to export. And if you don't make EVs, you can't export. I mean, and none of them want to make EVs. So this will be the same reasoning. We want freedom to not make EVs. And then, of course, they'll make EVs. Um, because it's becoming more and more obvious that, um, that you can't survive without making them. And, and the sooner you get there, the better. Simon, have you got anything from the issue that you um, you found particularly interesting, irritating, or annoying? <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> well, the, uh, apart from asteroid mining uh, <laughs> startup, I, I again I, I keep on coming back to the Sun Cable project, and it's valued at thirty billion dollars. Um, who, who wrote this story? Was this you, Andrews? Yeah. So uh... why why is it valued so highly? Well, simply because it's it's very very large scale, uh, and the reason it's so large scale, I think uh, there's two reasons. One is that, uh, like I believe we're we're covering in APE, uh, Australia just has a lot of room, and it's got good solar conditions, and it's got pretty decent wind in many cases. So you can use that to generate hydrogen, and use it. Um, you know, you can make electricity far beyond what Australia's domestic population needs, and then you can use it for hydrogen and, and maybe mining and and also, of course, in Sun Cable's particular case, uh, exports through a, a submarine cable to Singapore. Uh, personally, I, I feel like that big cable, it, it's something that you have to build the whole thing, billions and billions of dollars of investment before you get any, any payback. So I wonder if it's not easier to just invest in other things instead, like 
a 10 megawatt commercial rooftop or something. Um, but, you know, that, that's... So, a... so look, 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 this is a license to print money. If you can export energy en masse from Australia, it is a license to print money. Um, you get all the political will behind you because um, you're doing so much good for the economy. Um, it's it, that's why it's um, it's you look at the the nearby uh, you look, you look at places like Singapore um, who just chase whatever is the current mode of uh, modus operandi and they chased um, LNG most recently and they, they they're making all their electricity from uh, from imported gas. And the cost of doing that is, is huge. Um, and what does it cost to get a, a shipload of um, of LNG to Singapore? Um, so much so, they thought, well, we'll become a, a the, the Asian hub for it and we'll invest heavily so that we can make some of the money back. Um, but still, the cost of electricity in Singapore will be massively high. Um, and that's the, the reason that the cable stops there in the Sun Cable project, because they can undercut that energy and still make tons and tons of money. Um, that's that's how. So the, when you get uh, this is just a classic development process. Well, we've got rights to the land. We've tested the land. We know how much sun it is. We've um, looked at the contracts and how much it's going to cost to buy the solar panels. And we've done this and we've done all uh, all of our work. And there might be a few technical issues that we haven't quite yet overcome well that was perhaps a couple of years ago maybe now they have overcome them i listened to a, a speech from one of their technical guys on some somebody else's podcast and the detail that they've gone into uh, is amazing <laughs> and and they have all this intellectual property of this is how it will be done and this is how much money it will make at that point if someone wants to buy into it the value it, you know what are you buying into it's worth 30 billion they're probably right it's probably it's probably a low ball estimate so once it happens to serve singapore how much uh, you know singapore's kind of a, a special case because it doesn't have land for really any um, uh, types of power plants even nuclear they'd have to try and squeeze it onto this little island um, that's in their territory they've considered um so if Singapore gets satisfied with Australian solar, how much longer do you think it would be before you start seeing Australian Northwestern Territory build-outs um, serve the rest of Southeast Asia, which is obviously has its own land with lower irradiation due to the humidity and probably quite poor wind speeds as well, I think. Not great, and, uh, depending on the time of year. So how, how much longer do you think it would take to spread to Vietnam wanting some and Jakarta wanting some and thailand wanting so maybe another 10 years after that yeah well, they're not cable propositions are they they're shipping propositions and this is will be the argument that um the that mike kellen brooks has uh with andrew forrest um andrew forrest is saying no we just make hydrogen stick on a ship we take it there and he's saying no we put a cable in under the sea that's that's what's brilliant about this idea and he's, he's going no but don't you understand we can the ships can then go to all these other places later on and he's saying it's just hydrogen. They'll make it in Kazakhstan, and they'll be closer. So they're having that argument uh, now before either of them are possible. Um, and and that's why the, the two billionaires have fallen out over it. Um, I, I think um, um, I think the uniqueness of this proposition is the cable, and and I think at the moment exporting via a cable eventually is cheap um, as long as you export enough. Um, 
and it's a fixed price. It's a one-off fixed price capex, as long as you don't uh, the cable doesn't break multiple times. Um, so I, I, there I is think other one that's isn't there in in that would be Northwest Africa X-Links from Morocco to the UK, which is sort of a similar concept. Yeah. Hence the Mauritania um, uh, thing. I mean, I, I'm just looking at that. You look at a heat map of that region and you just get, you know, you, you, and you're a developer in the UK and you just go, well, Western Sahara. Cool, look, at, look at the amount of solar we can get from that. And how far is it? Oh, we could do this. You know, that, that's, that's what's going on there right now. And they look at North Africa uh, and 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 uh, desert parts of Africa. Uh, as some, I think someone said in an article this week, and there's no one lives there to complain. You know, so, so um, that's the beauty of uh, that parts of Northern Africa. No one's got any other use for it. it but but and, and because it's broken into six countries, you just you can bounce the idea off of each of them until one set gives you the right terms. So I think you're absolutely right. This is going to prop up all over the world. And... Um, and whether you're a Mike Cannon Brooks and you want to do it by cable, or whether you're an Andrew Forrest and you want to do it by um, uh, liquid hydrogen on a ship, both will come into being. And and that's what we're saying in APE. We're saying in Saudi, if Saudi doesn't get on, I mean Saudi has made promises for uh, ten or eleven years to install solar, never does it, never does it in volume, always does it as a token effort. Um, mostly to power its um, uh, its desalination plants because it hasn't got enough water. It's a bit so, of a sidetrack, but uh, I suppose we've answered the question in, in P, um, APE. When when are the Saudis going to panic? Don't you think the price of oil in uh, right now is that panic? You know, when you've got OPEC Plus still in still in one piece, and you're saying, "But we're ma we're making out like bandits. This is fine." Um, but the price of oil is falling, and, and, and you don't, you know, even a, a cartel can't keep that price. Cartel doesn't produce half of the world's oil. There are other producers that are not in OPEC, um, and eventually the price of oil starts plummeting, and then they start leaving, and they start arguing, and then they, and then it's every man for himself, and then it's no one's left alive. Um, this is so no one's left alive. It's twenty thirty five. It's a lot closer than everyone thinks. The panic, um, well, st I always say a stock market can sense your fear two years before the event happens. So I, I think, you know, we're looking at 2027 being a seismic year for oil price. So in 2025, um, they've got two more years of, of these kinds of obscene profits. And then the oil industry starts to fall apart. Well, in, in 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 investors' eyes, certainly, and then and then people like Sun Cable, you'll be hearing Sun Cable worth sixty billion, Sun Cable worth eighty billion, you know, uh, at some point. Any other Simon? Although that is that is the that's one it. Yeah. yeah. All right. So you've been listening to the team of Rethink Energy, um, and uh, as somebody said, who's that? Uh, Highly opinionated one who talks all the time. That's been me. I'm Peter White, the CEO and founder. Um, the um, you can find us at rethinkresearch.biz. You click on energy, and the news is free. The research is not, um, but we don't charge a lot. Um, that's the end of this week's podcast. There'll be another exciting episode next week. Thank you.